Not that long ago, Venezuela was among the freest and richest nations in Latin America. But in 1999, Hugo Chavez became president and he introduced his brand of socialism known as Chavism. Venezuela's liberties and prosperity were quickly eroded. Chavez died in 2013 under his successor, Nicolas Maduro, who had been his right-hand man, Venezuela has continued to decline. In 2019, the U.S. supported an alternative interim government headed by Juan Guaido. At one point, Guaido was recognized by dozens of countries as Venezuela's legitimate president. But last month, members of Venezuela's opposition parties voted to remove Guaido and dissolve the interim government. Elliot Abrams served on the staffs of Senators Scoop Jackson and Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was an Assistant Secretary of State in the Reagan administration, Senior Director of the National Security Council for Democracy, Human Rights and International Organizations in the George W. Bush administration. And in the Trump administration, he served as Special Representative for Venezuela. He's currently Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and chairman of the Vandenberg Coalition. He'll be talking to us today about Venezuela, mostly. I may be tempted to touch on other troubled lands that Elliot watches and thinks about. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us for this conversation here on Foreign Policy. So Elliot, first, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Happy to do it. Good to see you again. Good to see you. So look, because I'm nosy, I'll start with with this. You you were never a Trump supporter, which made it unlikely that he would offer you a job and unlikely that if he did, you would take it. But he offered and you accepted. How did that come about? At the beginning of the Trump administration, actually, Rex Tillerson, who you remember for about a year and a half with Secretary of State, offered me the job of Deputy Secretary of State. And I took it. And then Trump vetoed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I didn't go in at the beginning. And then two years later, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, he decided, you know, we're going to do more about Venezuela. Somehow or other, he got it past uh, Trump. Uh, Why did I accept uh, either of these? You know, my view is there are two teams in Washington, basically, uh, Democrats and Republicans. If your team is in then you should probably go into the government if you're offered a job that's worth doing because, you know, the government, whether you supported the president or not, the government has a job to do. The government has to run. And you do want uh, good people, competent people to go in. So I encouraged uh, other friends who had opposed Trump. I hardly had any friends who had supported Trump. I supported Rubio, actually, initially. Right. Um, But I think that you know, the tradition has been basically, if your party's in, go in. You know, I'm, I mentioned that Venezuela was once free and wealthy and promising. Maybe flesh that out, that history out for us a bit. I'm sure you've uh, you, you've spent yeah. some time studying it. Um, well, it was, uh, in the bad old days, it was a military dictatorship. That dictatorship was overthrown. And, and in 1958, Venezuela became a democracy. So in the days, let's go back to the Reagan days. Uh, Carter days, just about every country in Latin America was a dictatorship. Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, Peru, Venezuela then was a rare exception. It was a democracy. Was it a perfect democracy? No, but it was a democracy and it was a successful economy for a simple reason, oil. After the 1973 Arab oil boycott, oil prices shot up and any oil producer, whether in the Middle East, or Venezuela, was making an enormous amount of money. So for a while there, uh, Venezuela got to be almost a middle-class country. There were famous stories about Venezuelans in in the Caribbean, you know, that they were known as dame dos, which is Spanish for give me two. That is, Venezuelans had so much money, they'd go shopping and give me two of those. those." (laughs) In the Reagan years, when I was Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America, uh, again, far from a perfect democracy, but Venezuela was one of the important countries in the region at that point um, that was not a military dictatorship when these other major countries were. 
Um, and then it all fell apart. It all fell apart when Chavez came in. He was part of a failed coup, but then he won a free election. And he is one of the many examples, um, Ortega in Venezuela, in uh, Nicaragua, uh, Father Aristide in Haiti. If somebody who wins a free election and then refuses to leave power. And Chavez, after that, began to establish this terrible dictatorship uh, that was continued after his death by Maduro. How much oil does Venezuela have? It's more than most people re realize, isn't it? Well, on some measures, it has greater oil reserves than Saudi Arabia. It has the greatest in the world. Now, there is a caveat here, which is most of Venezuela's oil is very heavy, meaning dirty, high sulfur content, as opposed to what's known as sweet crude. By the way, in, in next door to Venezuela, in Guyana, they have very light yeah. wheat crude. As I understand, we're not doing much to support. I mean, Guyana is a country with light crude oil, lots of it, and not terribly good relations with the U.S. at this moment. Um, medium. I mean, Exxon is the main uh, producer in Guyana. So there is a big lobbyist, if you will, for yeah. for uh, Guyana in the U.S. But as you think about the future of Venezuela, that is, think um, tomorrow, all the political problems are solved. Everything's wonderful. It's the greatest democracy in the world. And now they want to start rebuilding their oil industry. If you're an investor, you have to think about who in the world is going to want this terribly heavy oil 10 or 20 years from now when Venezuela's industry gets back on track. It would take probably a decade. When Chavez came to office, Venezuela was producing 3 million barrels a day. That's a lot. I mean, if you compare Saudi Arabia which has sometimes done six, seven million barrels a day. Three million barrels a day was a tremendous amount of production. Now they do maybe 400,000 barrels a day. So it would take probably a decade to get back to three million, but it's not clear anyone would want three million barrels of that heavy, dirty, high sulfur crude oil. The International Maritime Organization uh, in 2020, I think, it was uh, ruled the ships can't use that kind of oil because it pollutes the seas. Um, and I think you'd see over the coming decade or two more and more limits on the use of that kind of oil. Oh, this just raises a couple of subjects I want to, but I want to come back to them because I also want you to flesh out what's happened to Venezuela since in terms of, for one thing, the inflation rate, the unemployment rate, how many people have left the country, just given up on it entirely, the poverty. I mean, flesh that out for us a little bit, too, so we people understand. Chavez and Maduro have largely destroyed that society. It's really tragic. It was a country of a little over 30 million people, of whom about 6 million are now refugees or migrants. So 20% of the population um, they have surpassed, I'd say, in late 22, um, Syria as the largest group of uh, refugees in the world today. Mm. And this, again, in a society that in the 80s, let's say, pre-Chavez, um, was a uh, successful, rich, by Latin standards, certainly rich society. If you look at any measure of poverty, of calories per day that people can eat, of the availability of work. All of these statistics, uh, it's just mind-blowing. The inflation rate was the largest in the world. Uh, and the currency, you know, they did one of these things, you, you add three zeros to the currency. Um, the currency is essentially worthless. In fact, one of the things that Maduro did in uh, 2021 and 22 that actually worked was dollarize the economy because their own currency is completely worthless. So what it means is that if you live in Venezuela today, and again, 6 million people have left, if you live there today and you have somebody outside the country who can send you dollars, whether they're in the US or they're in Chile or they're in Spain or whatever, if they can send you some dollars, you can survive. If you're trying to survive on the local economy, 
you're going to face desperate poverty. So what you now have in Caracas is wonderful, fancy shopping malls and fancy restaurants that serve people who have dollars. Now, they can be people in the government. They can be people engaged in drug trafficking. Um, if you don't have dollars, uh, you're in desperate shape and you're relying on charity. You're relying on um, various international organizations to give you food. So it's the social situation of the vast majority of people who are not rich and don't have dollars is desperate, which is why so many people leave. I also want people to understand when we talk about inflation, we've got about 7% inflation in this country, which I think is dreadful. It eats away at people's savings. It's hard for people on fixed income. It's a terrible thing, 7%. But inflation has been up in in Venezuela as high as 7,000%. And I think uh, numbers I have in 2020, it was over 3,000%. I mean, it means you, right. you, you get paid and and if you don't, if you can't, Buy something quickly, or 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 or, or trade in enough to another more stable currency. Your money is going to be worthless by the time you take the bus home. That is right, and it also means that if you're retired, let's say a retired government employee, your pension is worth literally nothing. Right. So you have to rely on your children, or you have to go out and scrounge. I mean, it it is a desperate situation for most Venezuelans. Now I mentioned, you know. Uh, some of the people who have dollars are people engaged in drug trafficking. One of the things that's happened under Maduro is a vast expansion of criminal activity of all kinds. The guerrilla groups, the FARC and ELN from Colombia, uh, now exist as much in Venezuela as they do in Colombia. And in that border area, they, well, they basically own that Western Venezuela border area. If you look at how how do Colombian drugs get to the U.S., they go east into Venezuela and then from Venezuela up through the Caribbean to the U.S. But there's other, um, much other criminal activity. There's illegal gold uh, activity, gold mining, gold smuggling goes on in southern Venezuela in the Amazon, in the Amazon region, in the Amazonas province of Venezuela. Um, this is, again, a criminal activity, though in the drug trafficking and the gold trafficking, the Venezuelan army is deeply involved. So if you're a general, again, you know, your salary is probably worth nothing, but you have the opportunity to make a lot of money uh, off the books. And that's one reason the army has stayed loyal to Maduro. In fact, here's a, it's a point worth making. You know, we in the Reagan years helped. People in South America in particular get rid of those military dictatorships, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Peru. You know, how did that happen? There were negotiations with the army in which the army went home, went back to the barracks. And the reason that was successful there and not in Venezuela, I think, is you don't have an army in Venezuela. You have a criminal gang. The whole regime is a criminal regime. And that means, for one thing, that they're making a lot of money, and for another, that they fear that if democracy returned, uh, they'd all go to jail. All right. So you get this job as special representative for Venezuela, and I imagine you get a good night's sleep, you have a hearty breakfast, and then what do you do? You go into the State Department, and the most important thing, of course, is to make sure you have a parking space. <laughs> right. Once you achieve that great goal, um, the policy had actually uh, begun to be set. I should say I started the job uh, in the third week of January, January 24th, I think it was, 2019. The policy had been set, actually announced that week, that we were going to go along with the National Assembly of Venezuela. Here's what happened. They had a free election in 2015 for the National Assembly. It really represented the Venezuelan people. In 2018, they had a presidential election that was stolen by Maduro. So the National Assembly said, well, okay, the stolen election, that means that there's nobody who's uh, legitimate to be, to be 
sworn in as president in January 2019, there's a vacancy. Hmm. So we said we agree with that. And under the Constitution of Venezuela, if there's a vacancy in the presidency, the speaker of the National Assembly becomes interim president. That was Juan Guaido. And that's how it was that Juan Guaido became interim president and how it was that the United States and dozens of other countries decided to support the National Assembly in saying, we have that vacancy, we fill it with the Speaker of the National Assembly. That policy had been adopted when I got there. So the, the, the thing we had to do, well, one thing was, of course, to learn, I had to do is learn a lot more about Venezuela, but start talking to the opposition, start meeting with the opposition. Never in Caracas. I went to Venezuela back in the Reagan years as a U.S. official. I did not go as a U.S. official in uh, the Trump administration. But we met them in um, Colombia. We met them in Peru. We met them in Florida some, or Washington. And we had um, many meetings in Washington. And then many meetings with other Latin American and with European governments, ambassadors, prime ministers, foreign ministers, because we wanted to get as large a group of democracies as possible supporting the Venezuelan opposition. And um, we did that. We also wanted, and this is working with other governments and above all the U.S. Treasury, uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls to impose these sanctions on Maduro regime and to get other governments to impose them as well. What we wanted, of course, was for there to be negotiation that would lead to a free election and would lead to Maduro leaving power. And that uh, we did not achieve in the last two years of the Trump administration, 2019 and 2020, um, tragically, because you see what's, what's happened to Venezuela. And just backfill this for us, uh, the, the stolen election, how was it stolen? Was it stolen Fully vote counts. Was there any international? Were there international observers who said? Yeah, How were, do we know that? There were observers. Um, there were some observers, uh, but it was unanimous. I mean, there isn't literally anyone. I mean, the Carter Center, um, the you know International Foundation for uh, Elections, IFAS, uh, the European Union. There isn't anyone who said that was free election. The opposition, for example, had no access to media. Um, the the um, institution that's supposed to count the votes, totally controlled by Maduro. I mean, any way you look at it, um, it was not a free and fair election. And, you know, classically, he just declared himself the winner. No one, no one, even Latin America. I mean, there were a few governments in Latin America that maintained relations with him. Mexico did, for example, Cuba, obviously. Um, but none of the democracies said that was a free election. So you were in this job for like two years, maybe two years, three years, almost exactly, almost exactly. If and again, you had, you had recognition of Guaido by a lot of countries. I think a lot of people understood how bad Maduro was. Do you think if you had had another two, three, four years, you you might have succeeded in terms of? Achieving the goals you talk about, putting Guaido in, getting Maduro out, or was that not really feasible? I think looking back now, and again, trying to compare it to what the United States did help achieve in the 80s, getting rid of all those military dictatorships, I doubt that if we had, frankly, if we had continued the policies another year or two, right to today, that we would have achieved the result we wanted because two reasons, basically. A, it's a criminal regime. Um, those military dictatorships in South America of past decades, they were human rights violators. They had they had done a coup, but that's it. They weren't engaged in all this horrible criminal activity. They weren't thieves. They weren't trafficking in gold and drugs. So you could negotiate with them. This is a criminal gang, uh, which I think is going to be much harder to get out of power. That's A. B, go back to those Reagan days. The only important country for the, all of them was us, was the U.S. They weren't getting Brazil, Argentina, uh, Uruguay, Chile. They weren't getting any assistance from outside. The way Maduro is getting assistance from Cuba, from Iran, from Russia, from China. So as I look back at it, um, I mean, this will be maybe a controversial remark, but it seems to me that the mistake we made here was 
we should have made a decision, uh, I think, in 2019 to try to overthrow the regime. And that would have meant, um, you know, CIA activity, uh, whether whether the president would have agreed to it, whether the CIA could have done it um, is a different question. But I think looking back, we never did that. I mean, you know, the Maduro regime claims we did. We never did any kind of covert activity to to overthrow that regime. And that was, I think, a mistake. You know, and I want to, if we have time to talk about all the various foreign influences there, but I think we should spend a couple more minutes on Cuba's because Cuba has played a huge role. I mean, in some ways, Venezuela became Cuba's satellite. Is that going too far? It is not going too far in a couple of ways. One of them, the Cubans took over the secret police, the intelligence service. There were, well, years, 2019, 20, Maduro's bodyguards were Cuban. He was guarded by Cubans, not Venezuelans. Anybody who dealt with the uh, presidential palace said you could tell from the accents these were Cubans, not Venezuelans. Uh, they were at many of the military bases, as, as, which you might call commissars. So um, the regime was kept in power very substantially by Cuban intelligence officials rather than just the Venezuelan army. That's for a second. The Cuban, why were the Cubans doing this? It wasn't just, you know, ideological solidarity. It was money. It was oil. Once the Soviet Union uh, disappeared, uh, the Cuban regime, the Castro regime, had a real tough economic problem. Who's going to bail us out now? Well, the answer was Hugo Chavez and Venezuela. And to this day, they are shipping hundreds of millions of dollars worth of oil. They are the oil supplier to Cuba. They don't get paid for that oil. Or rather, they get paid for it in sending uh, intelligence officers to Venezuela to keep the regime in power. Now, if I remember correctly, the Obama administration, President Obama, was not particularly tough on Venezuela. And he certainly wasn't on Cuba. He visited Cuba. He slapped backs. He went to a ball game. He got his picture taken under the portrait of Che Guevara. Cuba got a lot from Obama. Obama got nothing, as far as I am aware, in return, not the release of political prisoners, not uh, additional freedoms, not an agreement by the Cubans to say, OK, we're going to have less influence on places like Venezuela. No, no, nothing at all. This was a, it was a one-way street, pretty much. I think that's right. I think uh, the problem uh, with that policy was that it was not a bargain for exchange. It was a kind of apology by Obama for what he viewed as having been American crimes and sins of the 1950s um, and 60s. Um, but you're right, and you see it now, because many of the same players are actually in the Biden administration in uh, positions of significant influence. They have not yet much changed the Cuba policy. Uh, they've weakened it a bit, but they were beginning now uh, in 2022 significantly to change the uh, policy toward Venezuela. And, of course, I fear we'll see more of that in 2023. But I would, I mean, I'd say they're really basically abandoning the democratic opposition forces in Venezuela. Right. If you look at the statements, and at the very beginning of this year, I don't remember the date, January 2nd or 3rd or something like that, they put out a statement on Venezuela um, that was very good. And the statements really, you know, generally are very good. But what they're doing is abandoning the opposition there. If you talk to people in the opposition, that's their really unanimous view. And more than that, or not more than that, but as part of that, Biden recently, as I understand, lifted some sanctions on Venezuela, on Maduro, and of course, sure. asked him to produce more oil. And this is, strikes me as, I mean, I think I, I understand it, but maybe I don't. At the same time that, that that Biden is asking Maduro to produce more oil, he is discouraging oil production and refining in the U.S. In other words, he he is he has said he's going to end fossil fuels. That that that's Biden's words. 
but he's ending them in the U.S. Now he's saying we can't produce this here, but it's okay to produce dirty oil in Venezuela. That's fine. In fact, I want to encourage that. And somehow that's good with the what I would call it with the environmental lobby and environmental alarmists. I, I and I must say I find all this confusing because we can produce gas and oil much more cheaply, much more environmental in a much more environmentally sensitive way here, and in a way that's better for our national security, rather than go to to a dictator like Maduro and prop him up by eliminating sanctions and asking him, can't you give me a hand? By the way, which he probably can't do because the state of oil drilling and refinement in Venezuela and I think you alluded to this, is is very poor after yes. all these years of, de- of economic deterioration. Am I yeah. right on all that? Yeah, I, I'm with you. I mean, I find it, first of all, I find it morally offensive that the administration was trying to increase oil production both there and in Iran, because had the administration been able to get back to the Iran deal, the JCPOA, you'd have had significant increase in Iranian and and then Venezuelan oil rather than in American production. But as you say, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the, the Iran part, let's, you know, separate subject, but they can produce oil. In the case of Venezuela, the uh, oil fields now have basically 20 years of decrepitude under Chavez and Maduro with uh, very significant underinvestment. So the production comes down from 3 million barrels a day to about maybe 15% of that. What the administration did in uh, the middle of 2022 was to allow late uh, second half of 22 was to allow Chevron to start producing more. Now, will they produce more and then bring it to the U.S.? Yeah, 25,000 barrels a day, 40,000 barrels a day, 50,000 barrels a day. This is trivial in terms of world oil supplies. Um, will they be able to produce a lot more than that, 200,000 barrels a day? By investing, they would. And Exxon sorry, Chevron has made it clear that they're not going to invest. I mean, they said this several times in 2022. They're not investing more money. What Chevron's trying to do is to get uh, oil out um, because that compensates them for work they do. So uh, here's a question. We have a Democratic administration in Washington. Why do they care so much about what Chevron wants? That's another mystery. Uh, about all of this. But the administration claims we're doing this in exchange for concessions from the Maduro regime. They're going back to negotiations over a democratic outcome with the democratic opposition forces, and we had round one in Mexico. Well, it's true. They met in Mexico. When I say that the administration is abandoning the opposition, let let me give you a vignette. The opposition view in Mexico was, well, we're not going to agree that negotiations have begun because that and, and, and that lets the administration allow Chevron to do more with Maduro until we get a timetable that because this is just the opening round. When are we going to meet here in Mexico to do real serious negotiations? We need a fixed date. The Maduro regime took the view. Yeah, you have a fixed date. You know, an agreement in principle, someday we'll meet again. In the middle of that dispute between the two sides, the United States took a position. It took a position of supporting the Maduro regime. What do you need a firm date for? You don't need a firm date. Cutting the legs out from under the opposition. This is the kind of thing that leads the opposition people to say, well, whose side are you on? Right. And then and two things. One is uh, I I may be in favor of art for art's sake, but I don't know I'm in favor of diplomacy for diplomacy's sake. <laughs> the, the idea that if we just, if they sit down in Mexico and talk, oh, well, that's a great victory for diplomacy or a great victory for us. They haven't agreed to anything whatsoever. Probably they won't. Second, it sounds like, if I'm reading you right, that all this has dispirited the opposition. And that may explain in part why the opposition said, let's give up on Guaido and let's give up on the interim government. It's over. Forget about it. If the U.S. isn't supporting it, what are we doing? We're out. We're, you know, we're out on a limb yep. here. It's not going to work. Yeah, you're right. We should get to what happened just at the very, very end of 2022. Um, the National Assembly voted to disband what we had called the interim government with an interim president, Juan Guaido, and to start appointing a series of commissions and committees. I think it was a big mistake. Um, I think it has to do partly with 
individual um, people's ambitions. What I mean is that there's a presidential election 2024 in Venezuela, or there's supposed to be. At the very end of 2022, the uh, opposition, the National Assembly, decided to disband the interim government with Juan Guaido as president and appoint uh, several commissions and committees to try to perform that executive function. The critical one being keeping guard on the billions of dollars of Venezuelan government money that's in London and in Portugal and other property around the world, preventing Maduro from taking it. I think that was a mistake. I think, you know, Juan Guaido was the symbol of the Venezuelan refusal to accept Maduro as legitimate president. Why did they make that mistake? I'd give two reasons. One, personal ambitions. The, there was a presidential election in 2024. There were going to be primaries, uh, theoretically anyway, in 2023. People want to run. So Guaido wanted to run. So other people say, well, I don't want him to run. I don't want him to run as interim president. I want to run. And Guaido, I think, made the mistake of not initially stepping down as interim president to run in the primaries or of saying, okay, I'm interim president. I won't run in the primaries. There was a lot of a lot of individual error, I think, in this. But secondly, this is the kind of thing that happens when the United States walks away. You know, we we coordinated with the opposition. We worked with them. It's always uh, a difficult thing to do because think, think of the conditions under which they're working. Many of them are living in exile. Others are in Venezuela where they could be arrested today or shot today. So their position is very difficult. And I don't want to be one of the people who, you know, sits in comfort in, in the United States and says how terrible they are. But I do think they made a mistake. And I think we would have been able to avoid that mistake if the United States were involved more with them and they trusted our advice, which I think they don't do anymore. And if they're not shot or arrested, is that because Maduro thinks they're really no threat to me. There's no re I'm better off not bothering with them. I'll just ignore them. Is that sort of how he looks at it? I think it's half and half. That is, some of them uh, in these last, uh, let's say, four years uh, are jailed. Um, you know, people go in and out of uh, prison. You go in for six months. Uh, you come out. Uh, you go to house arrest. You know you may be arrested again or kicked out of the country again. In other cases, I think, you're right that he either doesn't fear them or he's got some concern about world opinion. Let me give you an example. In the last uh, six months, you had the inauguration of the new president of Colombia, Petro, and the new president of Brazil, Lula. Neither of them invited Maduro to his inauguration. These are both leftists, Petro and Lula, and they didn't want him there. Because they were actually freely elected, mm. and they don't want him. They don't want to pal up with this with this guy because they know who he is. They know. So uh, Maduro is somewhat concerned about his international image, and he doesn't want it to be even worse than it is. You wrote last month about something that's gotten very little publicity, as far as I can tell, and that is that uh, in October the Biden administration engaged in a prisoner swap with the Maduro regime. Maybe just tell us a little about that, because I found I, your, your piece on it was was interesting, and I'm not sure I read about it anywhere else. They did. They managed to free a bunch of Americans, all of them illegally imprisoned, unjustifiably imprisoned. Um, most of them, people who had worked for Citco, the oil company, and been in prison for about five years. And they let out two drug trafficker nephews of Maduro's wife, <laughs> uh, the regime's first lady. Now, these guys um, had, if I remember correctly, 18-year terms, and they'd served maybe two years. So that that was the deal, showing you, of course, you know, it's a personalist dictatorship. It shows you what Maduro uh, and family care about, their own family. This is always a very tough thing for any president, these prisoner exchanges, because almost always you're trading an innocent American for 
a criminal or a or a spy. It's hard to criticize. You always want to get Americans out. But what troubles me is that this was not just a prisoner exchange. It was step one in the change of policy toward Maduro, you know, which and other steps like the Chevron step. And one should mention the U.S. ambassador to Venezuela and the NSC senior director for Latin America went to Venezuela as part of this getting closer to the Maduro regime, went to Caracas and met with Maduro, something that hadn't happened uh, for about five years previously. So the prisoner exchange, I, I think, is part of this broader change in U.S. policy toward Venezuela. I wanted to flesh out a little bit about the other countries that are having an influence uh, on Venezuela and have been for some time. And one, of course, is, is China. As recently as July, according to Mariana Sassio Grady at the Wall Street Journal, um, Venezuela was sending China oil um, to pay back a loan of $50 billion that uh, the People's Republic of China had made to Hugo Chavez. So China's been pretty influential there, and of course, in other parts of Latin America, which we may mention as well. Yeah, it's interesting. The Chinese lent something like $20 billion. The Russians lent something like 10. The Russians got most of it back uh, through the oil they got. The only way that, you know, the regime has no money. So the only way it pays back the Chinese is oil. And a lot of the Venezuelan oil uh, does go to China. One of the other things the Chinese did was, uh, I mentioned, you know, the Cuban spies, um, the regime's ability to monitor communications uh, all of its electronics come from China. So the Chinese have helped the regime stay in power as well. And that billions and billions and billions of dollars. Now, they're not giving any more money. It's very striking. They've lost confidence in Maduro and obviously in his economic management. They see that he has destroyed the economy. So they want that oil because they want to try to get as much of their money back as, as they can. They really, really overinvested in that regime. And Iran, a, a few, I don't know, a month or so ago, Larry Franklin wrote a piece about Nicolas Maduro signing an, a cooperation agreement, I guess last June with Iran, which included 2.5 million acres of farmland in Venezuela that would now belong to Iran. Now, that's bad enough if if in a country where people are hungry, farms are growing crops to send to Iran. But evidently, it may not just be for that. It may, the acreage may be used for military operations, for terrorist training. Hezbollah already runs paramilitary training centers uh, in parts of Venezuela, Margarita Island, northeast of the mainland. So uh, this is not the only country, again, that Iran is uh, is having an influence over but it's it's certainly one an important one. Yeah, there there are now Iranian supermarkets, <laughs> oddly enough, in Caracas. Um, Iran is helping with the uh, spying. It's helping with the uh, regime's intelligence activities. We in the Trump administration put a limit on what they could do. There were reports at times that they were going to ship missiles to Venezuela, missiles that could reach the United States is like the Cuban Missile Crisis here. We told the Venezuelans, and we said it publicly too, that is not going to be permitted. We will interdict those missiles at sea if we can. And if we can't, we'll have to do something about taking them out when they get to Venezuela. They believed it because they were never sent to Venezuela. And that was not a bluff. I mean, we would, we would have done it. The Iranians are not, of course, giving them money. They're not lending them vast amounts of money. The main worry, I would say, about Iran is, will there be terrorist activity based in Venezuela? Uh, and there are all sorts of ways Venezuela can help. For example, a traditional way, give Iran a thousand blank Venezuelan passports. That kind of thing has certainly happened. We watched Margarita Island. We watched the Hezbollah activities. Hezbollah's activities in South America have been in the so-called triangle area, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay. And there has not been a lot yet in Venezuela. I think, frankly, the regime has been worried that the United States would 
would react. Now, maybe, you know, the thing we have to fear, I think, is that with this bit of a rapprochement with the Biden administration, their fear of this diminishes. And by the way, I don't think it's just hypothetical that the Venezuelans are giving Iranians Venezuelan passports. I think we know that that's going on. Yes. And at a time when you've got, as you said, maybe 6 million people leaving the country. And then we have that we have since the Biden administration began an open border in the, in the South. I, I, I mean, people say it's a, it's a crisis. People say it's a incompetent policies. I got to say, I, it's hard for me to believe that an open border is not what the Biden administration decided to do and has decided to do. And they'd rather say either, oh, well, no, it's secure or we're working very hard on making it secure or we're looking into the root causes, but it's been open. Now, that one of the things it means, and I think you've suggested, but I want to be explicit, is that you may very likely have Iranian agents getting Venezuelan passports and coming across that border and setting up cells in the United States. If that were to be the case and that were to have bad ramifications in the future. Uh, it, sh it should be made clear that this is not a failure of imagination. It's a refusal to imagine what may be going on with that. And yet, at the same time, it appears that the Biden administration is most eager to send back Venezuelan immigrants into the U.S., illegal immigrants, rather than those from almost any other country. They've, um, they've made that clear with some new law or regulation. I can't remember quite what to you. No, but but it, it's correct that that you know Cubans are fundamentally not sent back. Venezuelans are a new group. You know, a couple of years ago there were hardly any Venezuelans coming to the United States, and now you know all you have to do is watch TV. You can see reports on the percentage of the new people crossing the border that are Venezuelan or at least have a Venezuelan passport. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, I should say that. If you're talking about asylum claims and refugees, I I think people escaping from the, the the oppression of Venezuela have a good case, and I'm glad to see them here. I but I also think you have to what you need is a secure border, and you need a process where you can actually say, okay, who is this person? Is this really Raul Garcia, or is it Fariz Amiri, or something like that? But and you can't do it when you're when you have thousands no. upon thousands crossing over. I agree with you. Day. Many tragically. Millions of Venezuelans have become economic migrants. There are also people who really are under threat in Venezuela. And the problem we have today in the United States is the collapse of the asylum system. We don't really have a decent way of distinguishing who's a real, genuine political asylee and who's an economic migrant. All right. So one more question about Venezuela and then maybe one or two questions broadening the topic area. And that's you mentioned the elections coming up in 2024. Do you think they're likely to be free and fair elections or will? No. OK. No. I mean, <laughs> I think there'll be an election. They always do hold an election. The only thing you can hope for is that with enough international pressure, uh, the campaign becomes a time when the opposition can have parades in the streets and kind of remind people that they're still there. And you can also hope maybe that the corruption of the election process, the stealing of the election, actually then motivates both uh, Venezuelans to oppose the regime and reminds countries, democracies around the world, what a disgusting and despicable regime this is in Venezuela. But you cannot realistically hope for a free election, uh, you know, governed, held, run by Nicolas Maduro. Why would he do that? I'm sure his friend Daniel Ortega is advising him. Uh, Ortega, who held a free election and lost it and never committed that error again, I'm sure Ortega is advising him never, ever think of holding a free election. Right, right, right. I would argue that the most important nation in Latin America for the U.S. is not in South America. It's Mexico, yep. um, which is in North America. People forget that. Um, you recently wrote that it's that, that that the Mexican president has, and this also got a little, didn't get much attention that I could see, has persuaded the Mexican Congress to approve changes in the National Electoral Institute that, and I'm quoting you here, may undermine the fairness of all future elections. That seems to me rather significant for the United States. I, yeah, I understand that Mexico has never been a 
a Jeffersonian democracy and that it's always been flawed. But this sounds like when you say undermine the fairness of all future elections, that's a pretty bad trajectory you're talking about. It absolutely is. And remember that for decades, Mexico is not a democracy. It was a one-party state under the PRI party, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And finally, they became a multi-party democracy. The opposition PAN party won an election. Then power went back and forth. They had really free presidential elections and many free gubernatorial elections. And that's disappearing. It's disappearing. And by the way, that period of democratization, that's the period when we start building Canada, US, Mexico trade, North America as a fantastic trade block. That's disappearing because the president of Mexico, known as uh, AMLO, Lopez Obrador, is destroying it. And one of the first ways, one of the really important ways, destroy the National Election Commission, which for a generation or two has been fair. Um, destroy it so that the opposition can never again win an election. Now, for for the United States to have any influence over all this is hard because Mexicans are resistant to American political influence. But as near as I can make out, the Biden administration is doing nothing. It is sitting there now for two years watching democracy in Mexico being destroyed, barely even saying a peep about it, doing nothing about it, not trying to get other countries in Latin America or other democracies around the world uh, to do anything about it. And, you know, we're going to wake up pretty soon and Mexico will have gone backwards 50 years in political terms. All right. That's yeah. So this brings me to the, the last topic I want to talk about for today, but it's 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 connected to it. And that is what's sometimes called the pink tide of Latin yep. America, the Latin America moving towards socialism, U.S. influence decreasing, influences we've discussed of Beijing, Islamic Republic of Iran, even Russia that, that may be questionable depending on what happens with the war in Ukraine, all of that. But the largest economies in Latin America, they're not all huge, but the largest, they are all right now under the control of left-wing populists. We talked about Mexico, there's Argentina, there's Bolivia, there's Peru, there's Honduras, there's Chile, there's Colombia. Of course, Brazil has just gone under, has had just had an election. I guess it's free and fair, but it's now back in, in Lula's hands and he's he's very left-wing. We're seeing Latin America go in a direct, in, 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 a, in a very, well, it's drifting with the pink tide at, at, at the very least. And maybe talk about that, uh, that phenomenon and what it means and what we're not doing and what we ought to be doing. Well, you know, you're describing reality. Um, you know, in each case, there are some domestic reasons that explain it. Uh, I'll cheer you up a little bit. <laughs> all one can say is that this is a pendulum, or all the one can say positively, it's a pendulum. I mean, what happens when these leftists come to power is that they uh, manhandle the economy. They can't govern the economy properly. People get fed up with it. And so I think, you know, there's a right of center government in Brazil's future, in Argentina's future, in Peru's future. Now, whether the those center right conservative presidents will be able to do any better, that's a separate subject. But I think Argentines, for example, today are very unhappy with the way in which the Argentine government is governing. And I think you probably see a return to right of center government in Argentina. But for the moment, You've described it properly. There are a few exceptions that make you remember that democracy, if you have a real democracy, uh, there's a self-correcting mechanism. Example, Chile elected a really left-wing president, and he then said, well, we're going to have, we're going to replace the constitution with the new constitution. And he appointed a committee to write the new constitution, all leftists. They wrote a leftist constitution, and the people rejected it in a national referendum very much weakening this Boric, this left of center president. And now they got to go back to the drawing board and they'll have a new constitution that's much more centrist. Um, in other countries, I think we're going to see that pendulum swing if you can maintain the democracy. And that's what's been, of course, very good about a place like Brazil or Argentina. They have managed to keep 
since the military left in the in the 80s uh, to maintain a pre-democratic system where elections are free and you can vote the bums out. And the pendulum swings and they do vote the bums out, what they've been unable to do, except Chile was to have uh, decades and generations of sound economic management. That's why it was so depressing to see the left uh, win. In Chile, they had Christian Democrats and they had a socialist, but the socialists did not destroy the economy. They were pretty careful. Now they have the most left-wing government they've had in, what, 40, 50 years, and we'll see whether that's true. But if he does start to destroy the economy, I think what happened in the constitutional referendum shows us he'll get voted out too. So that's the silver lining here, democracy. All right. Well, we'll I guess we'll we'll leave it on a on a, on a positive note since you have. <laughs> I I guess I fear to, to to turn a joke around that you know Latin America is the the continent of the future, and always will be. Uh, <laughs> because if you look at places like Argentina, they just never fulfilled the potential they had. I mean, I've said this before. If you were betting up between the progress of Argentina and Canada around 1910, you'd have bet on Argentina, not Canada. Um, but somehow Latin America hasn't. And I, I also would argue that the United States needs a consistent and coherent policy vis-a-vis -vis Latin America. And you know, for various reasons, we've not been able to have one, certainly not across administrations, Republican and Democrat. Now, that's a problem of the U.S. in general, but more so when our parties are as... Uh, as at odds as they are today in, in terms of philosophy and in terms of what the, our view of the world, I mean, at least the Cold War, even though there were different interpretations of it, we all, both parties had some sense that, yeah, we had to contain communism and contain the Soviet Union. And now I think we, it's very hard to have a policy in place for even four years at a time. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I think if you ask, you know, another way of asking that, how much time does the president, the National Security Advisor, Secretary of State, you know, spend on Latin America, uh, spend on even North America, on Mexico? Mm. I think these things are so far down on the agenda that they're just not getting the attention they deserve. Well, Elliot Abrams, I'm glad you're following these 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 issues, and uh, it's always an education and a delight to talk to you. So thanks for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Cliff. And thanks to all of you who have been in, in with us on this conversation. Glad to have you here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.